Our speaker today has a knack of writing tomorrow's headlines in his current books. Uh, he's been at this for a long time. Joel Rosenberg has authored 19 books. Um, uh, I also author books. The big difference is his make the New York Times bestseller list and the USA uh, bestseller list and another one he told me about, but I forget. Um, but uh, Joel, God has placed him in amazing places. He was just uh, last week, spoke at the Reagan Library and uh, speaks to dignitaries around the world as well as write, writes books. Um, I'm going to show you a picture as we start by way of introduction. This is uh, Billy Graham. This is his pastor, uh, Dr. Koshi. He'll talk about him. And that is Joel Rosenberg. That guy is going to speak to you in a minute. Do you think you can trust him? Does he have anything to say? Well, yes, he does. And uh, so would you please welcome our good friend, Joel Rosenberg. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, sorry. Thank you. Younger, thinner. Those were the days. Yeah. That was something special. You know, very rarely you're going to get a chance in life to meet a modern day Apostle Paul. Right. And of course, Skip had a great joy and honor of, of not just meeting, but, but really working with him and, 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 and being part of a ministry to reach the world for Jesus. And this is a big question we have in our lives. You know, whatever, whatever your background, whatever, whatever got you to Calvary, Albuquerque, you know, the question is, one of, one of the big questions in our lives is when we see Jesus face to face, is he going to be able to say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. You understood that there's lots of options in life. There's lots of opportunities. There's lots of diversions. But you were faithful in a few things. Like being a witness for Jesus. Knowing him, but also making him known to everyone that you could. Making disciples, right? That's the great commission, the great final command of our, of our commander-in-chief. Go and make disciples of all nations. Right? Not just the easy nations, not just the simple nations, not just the friendly capitalist democratic nations, but the difficult nations, the, the dangerous nations, the deadly nations. Are we willing to go and make disciples of all nations? Loving, sharing, witnessing for Jesus and hoping that people make a decision for Jesus rather than against him. Obviously, Billy Graham said yes to that call, right? He was, he was, a, he was a kid, a farmer's kid from North Carolina. And God used him to take the gospel to more people than any human being in human history. Right? Skip Heitzig grows up in a surfing community, long hair, you know, living that Calvary Chapel life pre-Calvary. To be a Calvary Chapel, you've got to like spin out. You're lost. You're very, very lost. Right? And, uh, and you get radically saved. And God says, hey, I, I, I want to clean you up. I want to change you. I want to use you to reach a few more people. And in Skip's case, a lot more people. I didn't know that that was going to be my path. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I'm Jewish on my father's side, Gentile on my mom's side. So by biblical teaching, I, you know, very few Jewish people come to faith in Jesus. Right, Jesus, uh, John writes in John chapter 1, he came, he, the Messiah, came to his own. His own received him not. But to as many as received him, you, the Gentiles, to you he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You know, yes, Jesus' first followers were Jewish. Many of his first followers. I mean, not just the, not just the, the 12, actually the 11, but, but, uh, but, but, but many tens of thousands. But in time, most, most Jewish people resisted and, and, and it was the Gentile world that opened to the gospel. And historically, most Jewish people have died and gone to hell without Jesus. Rejecting Jesus. No, we're not going to believe so when the Lord brought my father into the kingdom, my father's Jewish, my mom's not. My, my parents both got saved in 1973. When my father got saved in 1973, having been raised Orthodox Jewish, he thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul who believed this. 
He had never heard of a Jewish person that believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He'd never met such a person. And in 1973, there weren't that many. In fact, we've done a lot of research over the years, myself and my colleagues, and, uh, and we've found that in, in 1967, the year that I was born, that's the best uh, data that I think that we have at this point, in 1967, there were fewer than 2,000 Jewish people on the entire planet Earth that believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Fewer than 2,000. Today, based on a study that the, uh, my nonprofit ministry, the Joshua Fund, helped fund a, a massive a benchmark survey of American evangelicals that was released last year at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, we found using, uh, working through Lifeway Research, the Southern Baptist Research Arm, this massive study, we found there are now 871,000 Jewish followers of Jesus, Jewish evangelicals in the United States alone. The veil is coming off of our eyes. The, the, the partial hardening on the Jewish heart is, is being re- removed by God. We're in a season where Jewish people, more Jewish people are listening open to the gospel than at any other time in human history and more are responding. In, in Israel alone, In 1948, when Israel was prophetically reborn as a sovereign nation state, there were only 23 Jewish followers of Jesus that were known in the entire country of Israel. 23. Okay, Jesus said as a Jew, as the Messiah in Israel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But when you're down to 23, come on, you're getting, that's getting close to zero. And actually, several of these 23 are still alive today. I know several of them. It's extraordinary to meet. These are like meeting Christians off of the Mayflower, my friends. I mean, imagine knowing believers that helped found a country. If if Israel were easy to reach with the gospel, it would be done by now. It's the first country. But our team has been, you know, fairly stiff-necked about this issue. We don't really want to accept Jesus. Uh, we don't even really want to read the scriptures. Most Jewish people have never read through the, the Bible. They don't, it, it, this is a problem. And, 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 and part of my life's mission is God has saved me because my parents got radically saved. Their marriage was radically saved. Then I got saved. I wouldn't call it radical. It didn't seem so radical to me at the age of eight. Right? I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't going down Skip's Road or most Calvary Chapel pastors. I wasn't using drugs, dealing drugs. I wasn't, you know, in a gang. I wasn't astral projecting into people's bedrooms. I, was, you know, this was, I wasn't in the new age. Or, I, this wasn't me. I was eight. I mean, come on. I, um, so I, it didn't seem so radical when I got saved. But over time, I began to wonder, what is my, what is my unique calling? What, what is God, you know, I, I, I'm Jewish. I believe in Jesus. That's, that's unique, in this world. Again, in a world where there weren't that many, now there's many more. We believe now there are about a million Jewish followers of Jesus worldwide. Now, in a world of 15 or 16 million Jewish people, a million's not enough. But you, but you see the, you know, you see this flat line of Jewish response to the gospel, and now you see this big spike. This is the time to be sharing the gospel. This is the time to be prayerfully and financially investing in the kingdom. And making sure that every Jewish person in Israel and around the world has a chance to at least hear the mystery of the Messiah. That he's come. That Jesus is he. That he loves us. That he wants to adopt us into his family and make us part of the royal family. This is the time. And that's why I don't only write novels. I also started this ministry with my wife in 2006 called the Joshua Fund. Which is essentially... A a venture capital firm, a spiritual venture capital firm. We invest prayerfully, financially, and in other ways in small but promising gospel-focused, gospel-preaching, disciple-making, pastor-training, church-planting ministries in Israel, in the Palestinian territories, and in five neighboring Arab countries, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. This is, our, this is the footprint that God has called us to focus on. To make sure that everybody has at least heard the gospel clearly in their own heart language. And they have an opportunity to say yes or no. Receive or reject Jesus as Messiah. 
and to strengthen the local church to fulfill the Great Commission, to care for the poor and the needy, for widows and orphans, refugees, as well as teach the Bible, verse by verse, all the way through the scriptures, helping people who, who do know Jesus to grow and mature in a very difficult part of the world. This is, this is the two parts of my life. Making things up, that's the novel writing, and, and strengthening the church in the Middle East. That's, you know, and I would, I would drop the novel writing tomorrow, today, if God would just let me do the Joshua Fund, because I love this ministry so much. I love it, I love it, I love it. But the Lord said, look, that I, I am opening unique doors for you, Joel, not because you founded and, and, and are the chairman of a nonprofit ministry. You, I, you and your wife, I used you to found the ministry and recruit, train, and deploy a team to go focus on this. But that's not where I want you to spend most of your time. Most of your time, I want you writing novels. Really, Lord? I mean, just making things up. I mean, think about what it means to be a novelist. You're asking people to spend $28 and several days of their life to read something that is completely not true. It's completely made up out of whole cloth. That's kind of crazy. I mean, I, well, why would someone spend $28 and several days of their life to, to, to read things that aren't even true? Like, I mean, I wouldn't. I, I'm Jewish, so I wouldn't spend retail. I mean, I wouldn't spend 28 bucks. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe 15 on Amazon or something. But I think it's 25 here. But anyway, it's... Well, you're Gentiles. You may pay, pay retail. God you know, bless your hearts. That's, but uh, I don't. But anyway... Uh, I don't even like to read fiction. I will be honest with you. I don't find it that interesting. But, but, so that's I, I, you, you, unique to be a fiction writer that doesn't read fiction. But, um, but why, am I, why am I a novelist? Well, the first reason is because I don't know how to do anything else. Okay? I, well, you're, I'm a failed political consultant. Everyone I ever worked for, every political leader, they lost. <laughs> or did very well, but years after I was involved in their lives. You're laughing because that's not your resume, but now apply that to every, uh, you know, client contact that you have, failure, 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 failure. Oh, that doesn't sound so funny anymore, does it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was my life for about 10 years. And, uh, and of course, I, you know, I, I, I realized over time that I'm one of the few Jewish people in America that didn't get the financial gene, okay? I'm not, I'm not your stockbroker, your accountant, your hedge fund manager. I don't know how to do those things. I never will. Uh, but I didn't get the other Jewish skill sets either. I'm not your doctor. I'm not your lawyer. I'm not your chiropractor, your acupuncturist. I'm not running a major movie studio, okay? The, the, the really fun, good Jewish skill sets, didn't get those, right? I, I, I'm, I literally, my job is to make things up and to try to persuade you to, uh, to read it. Now, why do I do that? One, because I don't know how to do anything else. In my life, God had to shut a lot of doors so I would go through the one that he wanted me to walk through that was the good works that he'd prepared beforehand for me to, to serve him, okay? And, and I spent a lot of years of my life frustrated that he wasn't opening doors that I thought he should, that I wanted him to. But he opens the doors he wants to open. And, and, and that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, Colossians chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to a Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And I want to look at this passage as we look at God is opening amazing doors in the Middle East. Uh, he's, he's opening amazing doors uh, for followers of Jesus to to build friendships with people who don't know Jesus. That's a conviction of mine. I believe that everybody in the world needs a friend who loves Jesus. Everybody in the world, regardless of their race, ethnicity, religious background, everybody needs a friend who knows and loves Jesus so that we can be a witness to them. Not to coerce them, not to deceive them, not to, not, not to you know, try to force them to believe what we believe, but to be a witness, to share what we know and how much we've been changed, how much joy and hope that we have and pray that they would want what we have. Now, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul lays out some interesting principles for us. And I am now going to do what I used to tease my father for doing, um, but I have to do it because I'm old now. Okay. 
It's not quite that bad, but it's close. Okay. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word, for the word of God, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been also uh, imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul is telling us that part of being a follower of Jesus is devoting yourself to prayer. Now, prayer sounds like a very religious activity, but it's not. It's conversation. It's talking with God and listening to God, right? If, if, you're, if, if you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you don't talk to him or her, that's a sign of unhealthiness in the relationship. If you're not excited about waking up, or a spouse, obviously, or a child, if you're not waking up excited to talk to them, something is wrong in the relationship, Right? It, it, and we, we have a relationship with a God who's adopted us into his family. Didn't need to. We didn't deserve it. But he did it anyway if we say yes to the gospel of Christ. The invitation to get saved. We are now in his family. We happen to be in the royal family. Imagine being in a family where your father is the king. And he invites you every morning to come into his throne room and in the palace and sit and talk and share what's on your heart. Listen to what's on his heart. And would you not do that? If you had an opportunity to go meet with a king, wouldn't you do it? Um, now, in, in Skip's case, the answer is no. Uh, I invited him to come. <laughs> I'm teasing him, but uh, this is partially true. Uh, I, I invited him. And I'm going to share with this in a little, in a little bit. Um, I've had these opportunities where God has opened the door for me to go meet with kings and presidents and prime ministers and crown princes in the Middle East as a follower of Jesus to go meet with Muslim leaders. And I, I called him. I said, hey, I've got an opportunity to go to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and meet with these leaders as evangelicals. Would you like to come? Because, well, I'm really busy and I, you know, I have the church and there's lots of activities. I said, okay, no, no problem. And then, thank God, Lenya said, are you insane? What you, God's opening a door to go be a witness to the leaders of the Islamic world. And I mean, I'm glad you love the church and here in, you know, in the congregation here in Albuquerque, but go, my friend. And, and so he called back and said, yes, I, I would like to go. And I'm very glad. And you'll understand why in a few minutes. God loves to open these types of doors. Um, but he wants us to start by being in this relationship with God where we're willing to talk to him and listen to him. And it's, you know, if you got invited to the White House to meet with the president, whichever president, whatever you think of them, would you not at least consider that this could be interesting? Maybe I could be, maybe I could pray for this leader. Maybe I could be a witness to this leader. This happened to me a few weeks ago. I was, uh, well, let me just say I got invited to uh, have lunch with Vice President Pence. He and I have been friends. Our wives have been friends for many years. When he was back in the House of Representatives, uh, he and his wife were reading my novels. And they invited me to come to lunch. And we started a friendship. And for years, we've been sending them advanced copies of the novels. And then we'll go visit them. And we talk about the books. And it's very fun. And, um, and when he uh, became vice president, who knew? I mean, I didn't, he didn't expect to become the second most powerful person in the world. I didn't. And then, uh, so I, I, I've seen him, I don't know, four or five times since he took office. And uh, uh, four or five weeks ago, I was invited to come and have lunch with him at the White House. And it was a wonderful time to catch up personally, prayer requests, but also talk about what's going on with my novels and what's going on in the Middle East and what's in real life, what's happening with the administration. And at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, have you ever met the president? And I said, uh, no, I haven't. I've never even been in the Oval Office. He said, come follow me. Now, what was I going to say? You know what? I'm, I, there are YouTube videos I'd rather watch. <laughs> I'm a little behind on my emails and my Twitter account. You know, that's all fascinating. But I don't want to go sit and talk with the, the leader of the free world. 
I, you know, there's other things to do. I, I got a busy day. It's nice to see you. You're my friend. But I mean, come on. Look, if you had an opportunity to be invited into the Oval Office, I think you would go. The God of the universe is inviting you to spend time with him every day in, in, the, uni, you know, in the palace, in the, in the Holy of Holies, in the Oval Office, as it were. How often we like, ah, I'm busy. Eh, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Right? How many times have we blown off our quiet times? Eh, I got other things to do. I'm busy. Really? You're too busy for the God of the universe? Look, I do it too. I, I'm, not, I'm not proud about it. But I'm saying, do we understand the way Paul understood? Paul was a religious terrorist. He got radically saved. He understood, I should be in hell right now forever with no way of escape. But I'm not. I got radically saved for no merit of my own. And now I'm an ambassador for Jesus. And I'm telling you, you should spend time with him. Devote yourself to prayer. And by the way, you should pray that God would open opportunities for you to go talk to people about Jesus. To build friendships where you can be a witness for Jesus. Be an ambassador for Jesus. Yeah, maybe he won't take you to meet with a king or a president, but maybe he will. Okay, me, I'm a failed political consultant. I was a never-Trumper until the Thursday before the election. I told the president that in the Oval Office. How many times do you think the term never-Trumper comes up in, in Trump's Oval Office? Judging from the look in his eyes, not that many. <laughs> It was, and, and, you know, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story right now of, of, he said, well, what happened on the Thursday before? But anyway, uh, I, I did vote for him, but I had problems with him. I still have problems. But I told him, I gave him a list of eight or nine things that he is doing right, promises he has kept that I'm grateful for. My point is not that. My point is the first thing he said to me when Vice President Pence introduced me to him, well, first he said, come, sit down, let's, let's chat. And I'm like... Well, actually, the vice president said, I just wanted you to meet him. I didn't realize that you two have never met. Joel's an influential novelist, five million copies sold. He's an evangelical leader. I know we've got this lunch with the Czech prime minister in a few minutes, but I just thought you two should at least meet for a moment. Which, for me, you know, dayenu, this is a Hebrew word, this alone would be enough. But uh, the, the president said, no, no, let's sit down, let's talk. So he sat down behind the resolute desk, and I sat down right across from him. The vice president sits next to me, and in the room also is the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, also a friend and also a reader of the novels. I'm very happy about that. Uh, I've known him for years. And John Bolton, uh, national security advisor, also known him for years. I don't think he reads the novels, but I love him anyway. You know, that's unconditional love, right? <laughs> this is the room. And I'm, you know, I've written so many scenes in the Oval Office in my novels, and I've never been there. And this is, this is now happening? Now, but, but I'm having a hard time concentrating because all I can think of is the Sesame Street cartoon, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> one of these things just doesn't belong. Like what is happening in this room? Vice President, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, President. And he says, tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm like, uh, well, where do, you know, where do you begin? So I'm about to say something, and he says, wait, 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 wait. Mike, the vice president, you just called Joel an evangelical leader. Are you an evangelical, Joel? I said, yes, I am. He said, but your name is Joel Rosenberg. Isn't that Jewish? I said, well, it is. My father's Jewish. My mom's not. We're Israeli citizens as well as Americans. Uh, really? Well, how can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? And I'm thinking, get out of here. Are you telling me? Are you telling me? That's my favorite question in the whole world. I get asked that question more than any other question. I'm getting asked by the president of the United States in the Oval Office to explain how you can be Jewish and be a follower of Jesus. Get out. I, you know, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld person, but I felt like Elaine. But there were Secret Service, so I was very, you know, you've got to be careful. There's, you know. Anyway... <laughs> And uh, it was a fascinating, fascinating meeting. And I, but, but this is starting to happen in my life. And why? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I, 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 you know, I was against him. I told him. He, he then when he finally gave me the chance to say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, well, you know, I was against you. I was a, I was a never Trumper. And, and that was an interesting conversation. Um, 
But that's not our topic this morning. Our topic is open doors. Open doors to be a witness to a president who needs people to love him and to pray for him. I told him that's the last thing I said before I left. I want you to know, Mr. President, that despite our disagreements, when you became president, I have prayed for you and your wife and your children and your team every single day. And I won't stop. This has to be our mission. Whatever you think about this president, the last president, any president, we're commanded to pray for kings and leaders and all those in authority. That's, that's what we're commanded. And you, we can't say, well, I don't agree with that guy. All the more reason to pray. Don't you think Daniel was praying for Nebuchadnezzar? King Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who invented throwing Jews into fiery furnaces. I mean, come on. And Daniel served him. Because he was serving the Lord. Sometimes God opens crazy doors. I had a, I had a pastor in college, uh, Dr. Koshi. You saw him, the Indian pastor, who was the general secretary of that, of that Billy Graham crusade that was coming to my university, Syracuse University. And we, as students, were very involved in, in learning how to be involved in a crusade like that. And it was so exciting. And Koshi used to say, Joel, Lynn. We serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. A wonder working God. Right? Joel and Lynn, we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. A wonder working God. You have to understand, Joel, who your God is. And you ought to be praying prayers that he will do things in people's lives. That, you will, that he will open crazy doors. Not, I mean, he wasn't thinking to presidents and kings and leaders. But he meant... Don't sit there and know Jesus personally and not go tell people about him. And yet many of us, that's what we do. Like that's Skip's job. That's Billy Graham's job. Oh, well, Billy Graham is gone. Well, that's Franklin's job. They'll go tell people about Jesus. I'll just keep my head down and try to slip into heaven incognito. That's not a good, that's not a good strategy. Because we are going to stand before Jesus face to face one day. And he is going to take an account. He's going to assess how we did. It's not a matter of getting to heaven or not. We don't don't get saved because of what we do for Jesus. We get saved because we said yes to what he did for us. He died on the cross for us. He rose again for us. He's offering a free gift. Salvation. Take it. Leave it. But take it. Get adopted into my royal family or burn in hell forever. Like, that shouldn't be a hard choice. But people make it hard. My team makes it hard. But once we're saved, once we're adopted, we're supposed to represent the kingdom. We're children, we're adopted into the royal family. We're supposed to be his ambassadors and, and, and represent well the kingdom in this world. And he's going to assess this. And he, we want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful. There are so many things you could have done. There's so many distractions, so many opportunities in life. But you stayed faithful in a few things, knowing me and making me known. To anyone, everyone, most of my life is not meeting with the president of the United States or the vice president or other world leaders. Most of my life is... Raising four sons and, 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 and being a witness to my neighbors and discipling young people and, 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 and asking God to use the Joshua Fund and other ministries to take the gospel further and expand it out and, uh, and writing novels that share the gospel, right? That, that weave in the gospel message into the novel so that not only am I sharing, but if you give a copy of the, of the Persian gamble or whatever to a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, that you're sharing the gospel with them. I want to reach people with these novels that are not at Calvary Albuquerque this morning, that are at Barnes and Noble, having a latte, not expecting to think about spiritual things. But that's my goal. And I use assassinations, explosions, terrorism, you know, know, killings of all kinds, torture, you know, the classic tools of evangelism to... (laughs) To hook people into a story and then reel them in. This is fishing. Jesus says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay? God had to close and lock tightly so many doors so I wouldn't waste my time on all the areas that I'm not good at. That he does not have for me. He, he, he led me down a hallway where everything was locked until I went through this door, the novel writing door. And that door gave me a chance to fish. 
to, to mix my analogies. But, and, and when you're fishing, you've got to, I use the bait of, of intense terror uh, and horrific uh, worst case scenarios to hook people and start to draw them in. But once they realize the spiritual temperature is increasing, that there's a character in there sharing the gospel, people want to get off the hook. And now, you know, that's the, that's the challenging part of fishing. Not just the waiting to hook something, but, but now they want to get off. And I've got to reel them in. I need to keep you going. If I want to accomplish my gospel purpose in the novels, I need to, I need to thrill you. It's a political thriller. I've got to entertain you. I've got to keep you up all night. I've got to use short, intense chapters that are so... You, you know, they're, they're short and they're intense and you're like, all right, it's two in the morning, but just maybe it was just one more. Maybe just one more. These are, I write them like Pringles potato chips. You can't eat just one. <laughs> and, and the test for me is, are you tweeting or f- emailing or Facebook messaging me at six o'clock in the morning with curses? Oh, come on, Rosenberg. I got to get up for work. I got to go to school. I, I, I have no sleep. I'm on, I'm on empty and you've ruined my whole night. I love that. And the unbelievers are, that's, I'm doing my job. And, and the unbelievers are very colorful when they do this. The, the, the believers are, are, are not so colorful, but you know, you, oh, you, oh, I'm so mad at you, Rosenberg, bless your heart. You know, that's, that's sort of the, the Jesus way of saying, I'm so mad at, you know, I know what you mean though. Bless your heart. That's not fooling anybody. I know what you really want to say. But I love that. That tells me I'm doing my job. It means I'm pulling you through a story and you're so hooked that even though you may be going through a spiritual journey you're not anticipating or desiring, you're sticking with it. Let me give you a few examples of how that has opened up some crazy doors. A few years ago, I wrote a, a series, a trilogy of novels about uh, the Islamic State, ISIS, capturing chemical weapons in Syria and then launching a series of horrific terror attacks in the Arab world, in Israel, and the United States. Now, in that series, the, I made one of the characters, King Abdullah of Jordan, by name. It's, it's him, it's his actual real family in the novel. And ISIS is trying to assassinate him, blow up his palace, and take over his kingdom. That's not really bright. Okay, if you're an American, Israeli, Jewish, evangelical, you live in Israel, the idea of writing a whole series of novels about people trying to kill your next door neighbor, that's not a genius idea. Okay, that's very risky. Uh, because, you know, anyway, it, it's risky. And uh, somehow he ended up reading the second of the three novels. Uh, an advisor actually read it first, brought it to him and said, you have to read this. He says, why? He says, because you're in it. What do you mean I'm in it? It, it, It's a novel. I know, but you're a character. You're a named character. What? That's crazy. But he read it. He he read about people trying to kill him and his family and blow up his palace and everything. And And rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, which he could have done, he invited my wife and me to come and visit him for five days. The first meeting we had when we arrived, we had lunch with him. Him? the advisor that had given him the book, and Lynn and me. And we're in the palace, the one I'd blown up, and, uh, and he starts, he, that's how he started. He said, you know, I was wondering where it would be fun to meet you for the first time. And I thought, well, you did wipe out this palace, so I thought it'd be good to show you the palace and say, it's a really nice place, let's just hope and pray that it never you know, gets destroyed the way you describe. I said, it is, it's lovely, I love it, I'm going to be praying that nothing bad happens to it. He said, well, thank you. He said, I noticed that you made me a, a named character, but I also noticed that my advisors, my staff, they're, they have fictional names. But I can see who is whom. So I buy copies of your book and I give them to my staff. And I say, this is you. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. <laughs> don't read that. So he's got a sense of humor. We spent the next few days, he put us on his private helicopter, his version of Marine One, and sent us all around the country to meet with generals, to, to go to bases. What he was trying to do was show us how he, a Muslim king, a Muslim Sunni Arab king, is fighting against radical Islamists to make sure that my books never come true. He's a direct descendant of the prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam. He can trace his family line directly from the 7th century. 
His family, the Hashemites, ruled Mecca and Medina for 900 years. And now he's reading a series of novels by a Jewish evangelical. He's inviting me to come. And we've, we had uh, three meetings with him, including a two and a half hour dinner. The final night we were uh, there uh, just alone with him and several of his personal friends in the palace. It's an extraordinary opportunity to build a friendship and talk about, the, talk about the novels, talk about our lives, talk about our views, uh, even though we disagree theologically. The opportunity, and by the way, I, I, I brought him copies of the first novel. I said, your majesty, you read the second in the series, but there's, there was one before it. I brought you some copies. Can I just show you the first sentence of the first page of the first novel in the series. The novel happened to be called The Third Target. He said, sure. And so I opened it up. It was, it was written from the perspective of a New York Times foreign correspondent. And the book is written, all three, in the first person. Meaning he's written from the, from the, the uh, journalist's perspective. So the first sentence reads, I had never met a king before. And he reads this, he laughs, and he pulls out a pen. He goes, well, you have now. And he signs it, and he gives it back. And I've met, and, and so at the end of this, I said, listen, I was, I, would, I admired you before I came, but I got to say, I, I've learned so much more about you, your character, and, and, and I've enjoyed our conversations on faith and on geopolitics and so forth. Uh, you sent us up to the refugee camp. We got to see how you're caring for all these Christian and Muslim refugees from Syria who are fleeing from ISIS. Uh, we've learned so much. Would you ever consider having more evangelical leaders come and just spend time with you like we've done and, and, and to learn more about who you are and, and pray for you and pray for your kingdom. And he said, I would love that. Would you put together a trip like that? I said, I would. Now, a few months later, while we were working on that, I got invited to meet with the president of Egypt, the new president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. This is a man who, who uh, uh, led uh, uh, the movement to rescue a hundred million Egyptians from the terror the, uh, and, the, and the tyranny of the Muslim Brotherhood that was burning the country to the ground. And I got invited in Washington to meet with him. Not just me. There was 60 uh, Middle East experts. I believe I was the only evangelical leader in the room. Uh, leader, I don't know. Evangelical failed political consultant turned novelist, whatever. I think I was the only one of those. Um, it's a pretty limited pool of people to begin with. Uh, and at the end of the meeting, um, there were, you know, most people were former secretary of this and assistant secretary of that and, you know, ambassador of this. And they didn't like rush the stage and, you know, get a selfie with Cece, right? They, they, they knew the protocol. You don't do that. I'm like, I have a chance to meet the president of Egypt. Unless the Secret Service tackles me, I'm going to go say hi. So I worked my way around. Nobody shot me, tackled me, arrested me. And suddenly I'm shaking hands and introducing myself to the president of Egypt. And we get talking. I, I, I thanked him for all he's been doing to rescue his country from radical Islamism. I thanked him for all he's doing to protect Christians. Now, this is a devout Muslim. But I said, you're doing so much to protect your Christians in Egypt. And it's not been easy. And there's more work to be done. But you're rebuilding every church that was burned down or damaged or destroyed uh, during the revolution. Uh, I, I can see it. I'm, I, I'm grateful for that. Let me just say thank you. Well, you're welcome, he said. I see that you're reaching out to Jewish leaders and to Roman Catholic leaders, to Coptic Orthodox Egyptian Christian leaders. I don't ever remember an Egyptian leader building relationships with other faith groups. He said, well, this is the new Egypt. We're trying to change direction and, and go in a new way. I said, well, thank you. I said, I don't see that you've necessarily met with evangelicals. Uh, maybe I've missed that. He goes, no, I, I don't think that we have. I said, well, I would encourage you to do that. There are about 60 million Evangelicals in the United States, about 600 million worldwide. It's, a, it's an influential group uh, spiritually, uh, culturally, uh, and certainly politically in the current uh, climate. And so I just think, it, uh, and, I, and I mentioned very briefly, I mean, this is a, this is a total of a nine-minute conversation at best. I mentioned that I'd been building this relationship, this friendship with King Abdullah and Jordan, and we were going to lead a delegation there. I said, it's something that you might want to do at some point. He goes, absolutely. He just lit up. He said, would you bring a delegation to Cairo and do this with me? Now, he has no idea who I am. 
I mean, I'm in the room. I, somehow I got cleared, but he has no idea who I am. We've been talking at this point for seven of the nine minutes, and there's hardly anybody behind me in line, so we keep going. And we talk about it, and I said, I'd be honored to do that. And he turned to his ambassador and the foreign minister, his chief of staff, he said, gentlemen, make it happen. We exchanged cards, we worked this out. I flew home to Israel, and a few days later was Passover. Now, you know what Passover is. This is the story of the, the Jews that were enslaved in Egypt, leaving Egypt uh, to, uh, to make it to the promised land. Moses leading them. You saw Charles and Heston taking on Yul Brenner, right? You've seen the movie. So, you know. So, I'm having a Passover Seder with my family and a group of our Israeli Jewish believer friends at our next door neighbor's house. And they're like, you met with Cece? Like, how is that even possible? I said, I know. What a crazy open door. Imagine a Jewish man standing before the leader of Egypt on the eve of Passover and saying, let my people come. <laughs> That's not how the story goes. Right? That's a crazy open door. Right? That's the kind of door that when you pray, Lord, I'd love to go be... Uh, I'd like to build a friendship in the name of Jesus with a king and, and with a, a, a Muslim president. Apparently, God says yes to some of these prayers. Well, I'd love to keep sharing many, many stories, but I want to wrap up with uh, the doors that open next. And that was to bring a delegation of evangelical leaders to the United Arab Emirates and to Saudi Arabia. Now, we were told by the Saudi leaders that the Saud family, the royal family, had not met, met with or built a relationship with evangelical Christians in the 300 years that they've been in power. And yet they decided to invite me, of all people, to come and lead such a delegation. And this was the delegation I called Skip to say, hey, something's happening. A door is opening. Would you like to come? Well, I, I, you know, I've got, I'm so busy with Calvary Albuquerque. There's a lot going on. And look, that's noble. I mean, you, know, so you can't say yes to everything. But God bless Lenya for going, are you insane? I mean, have you read Colossians chapter 4? When God opens a door, this is unique. This is not the normal door. So he came. And I'm so glad that he did. Uh, I, I, I wish we had, you know, someday we need to do like an evening, you know, we would just do a whole evening on, on what happened in, in these meetings. It was amazing. But imagine, like, like, like you, I, I even said to the crown prince, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia uh, is the most controversial leader in, in, on the planet, right? Accused of a horrific murder uh, in, in Turkey of a, of, a, of a Saudi dissident named Jamal Khashoggi. We'd been invited several months before the murder happened, but we were supposed to go a month after it happened, when there was a global firestorm over this incident. And the question was, do you go or do you not go? And I, I believed, and we talked about it, we prayed about it, I, we believed that God had, was opening a door. It, yes, it was uncomfortable to go and meet with somebody who's accused of a horrific murder. On the other hand, if we say no... We are judging. We, we didn't know the details at that point. The very few people knew. We are now judging them. And they're inviting us not to talk about, you know, Turkey or Jamal Khashoggi. They're inviting us to build the first ever relationship between the Saudi Islamic leadership family and followers of Jesus as evangelicals. And if we say no, we may close the door for anyone to follow. It hasn't happened in 300 years. So we went. Now, as we planned out what our, our, pick, our, our questions were going to be, we were going to have a two-hour meeting with the crown prince, as well as with many other leaders in the country, but two hours in the palace. And we wanted to make sure that every question that we asked, that we opened with some scripture. For example, uh, one of the, our colleagues was going to say, you know, the Bible commands us to pray for kings and all those in authority, that we may lead quiet and tranquil lives. Um, so we want to pray for your father, the king. We want to pray for you, your royal highness, for your, for your royal family, and for the people of Saudi Arabia. How can, what are your prayer requests? How can we pray for you? That was a wonderful question and a fascinating answer. Uh, we talked about, you know, the Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we are praying for peace and we want to talk to you about what are your views about Israel? 
and uh, your openness to making peace. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's not a single church operating here in the Saudi kingdom. In the United Arab Emirates, there's more than 700 church congregations operating freely. We just came from there. It's fascinating. But you don't allow any. Could we talk about that? And would you be open to, to allowing churches to begin to be built? It was, it was, so every conversation, uh, almost every question, uh, opened with some scripture. We, because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, by the word of Christ. We weren't there to proselytize. We weren't there to coerce, deceive, uh, uh, try to pressure. But, we, but they invited us as evangelicals, right? So we wanted to be a witness in a place where no one had been, that we're aware of, had been a witness for Jesus before. And so at one point I, I, I said, uh, we notice, we've been noticing that you, your royal highness, have met with uh, the, the leader of the Coptic Orthodox Christians in uh, in, in Egypt, earlier this year, you met with Pope Tawadros. And we were, we were intrigued by that. We don't remember any Saudi leader doing that in the past. He says, that's right. We're, this is the new Saudi Arabia. We're trying to change directions from where we were going. We're trying to have a more moderate, uh, tolerant approach to Islam and build relationships with other faiths. We may disagree with, but we want to build friendships. Okay. We noticed that you went, uh, your, your Royal Highness, to London and you met with the Archbishop of Canterbury. We don't remember that ever happening. No, that's, that's part of it. And now, you, you, now you've met with some Christian leaders outside the country. Now you've actually invited Christian leaders, us, to your home. Thank you for that. And we're, we're, we're glad to have this conversation. And we've got many questions for you. I said, now the term evangelical Christian... Is it fair to say that this is probably not a term that is used much here in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? He said, yeah, that's, that's probably fair. I said, well, um, I, I've got a dear friend with me. Uh, he's an ordained, ordained pastor from Albuquerque, New Mexico. His name is Skip Heitzig. And if, if you're okay, would, could, we, could he just take a moment and explain what does it mean to be an evangelical Christian? What is it that we believe? What is it that motivates us? Would that be okay, your royal highness? And he said, absolutely. I would, I would love that. And, and you, could be ve- you will be very proud. You, you may be, you are, you should be very proud of your pastor because this is a man with a gift. I would have loved to have had that conversation myself. But this is a man with, this is his gift. This is his calling, right? And, and I may have a gift of making things up. He has a gift of of. of teaching the scriptures, of, of explaining the mystery of Christ with love, with respect, with grace, not there to proselytize, not there to coerce, just to answer questions, to explain. Because every person in the world needs to know somebody who's a friend of Jesus and to understand what is this mystery? What is this mystery? You know, a mystery novel, if you're going to read a mystery novel, you're, the whole point is who done it, right? You want, you're reading all the clues that will lead you to the, 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 the person who did it. Now, it's usually somebody who killed somebody, so that's, that's bad. But the mystery of Christ is who done it? Who died on the cross to forgive our sins? Who is the one that God sent to forgive us of our sins? Who is it that God sent to welcome us into his family, to adopt us into the, the, the royal family. Who is it that came and fulfilled all the prophecies? Who done it? That's the mystery of Christ. And if you know the answer, don't keep it to yourself. There are people who are going to die and go to hell if, if you don't share it with them. Now you may or may not, I don't know, get the opportunity. The door may not open for you to go to a Saudi leader or a, a Muslim leader or a Jewish leader, but... But God is opening doors and he wants us to be praying. He wants us to devote ourselves to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God would open a door for us for the word, the word of God, that we may speak forth the mystery of the Messiah for which I have been in prison. Now we have not been imprisoned. 
Right? Many in the Middle East, including in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt and other countries in the region, have been imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. We have not. But because we're free, all the more we should seek to be a witness and to stand with our local brothers and sisters in each of these countries. But pray for us that a door may open that that could happen. And pray that I make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Let, Lord, let my speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. So that I may know how I should respond to each person that, that you open the door to. This is our opportunity. And sometimes God answers prayers in, in, in ways that will blow our minds. But every open door we should walk through. We should ask God to open them. Wake up every morning saying, Lord, is there one person I could talk to today that doesn't know you? That I could love and share the gospel with? That I could explain? That I could invite to church? That I could invite to Bible study? Is there one more person I could share with? Maybe you've never prayed that in your life. Let me close with this thought. When I uh, was terrified in high school and didn't want to share my faith, I did decide to accept an opportunity to go share the gospel with a group of young people at the Olympics in Los Angeles. I, I didn't really want to, I wanted to go. It was both terrifying and, and, and exciting. And I went, I went through the training and, and on our way, one of the youth group leaders was sharing the gospel with, a, with a, a security guard at the airport in Newark on the way to Los Angeles. And I'm just watching him bewildered. Finally, he finishes and he comes over. He's all excited. And I say, dude, what were you doing? He goes, I was sharing Christ with that security guard. I said, why? We're not even in Los Angeles yet. <laughs> he said, Joel... You know, you don't have to go to Los Angeles to share the gospel. Everybody needs to hear about Jesus. Really? I, I had no idea. I, never, never dawned on me. Who does God, what door does God want to open for you? Are you asking him to open? And are you asking him for the courage and the faithfulness to go through when that door opens? Remember, and I just, it's both an encouragement and a warning. I want you to pray that way, but I want you to remember, we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God, a wonder-working God. If you start praying for open doors to love, and share the love people and share the gospel, he will answer. So also pray, Lord, give me the courage and the wisdom and the faithfulness to go through. Let's pray in closing. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've saved us. And those that are here that have never said yes to Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would stop running and they say, yes, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I will repent of my sins. I know I'm not going in the right direction and I'm sorry, Lord. And I want to say yes to you. I want to be adopted into your family, forgiven, cleansed, transformed. And for those of us who know you, Lord, let us pray for open doors and let us have the courage to go through them. That when we see you face to face one day, we will hear from your lips, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things now. Enter into the joy of your master. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.